0: This week's talk is a continuation on the theme of simplicity, and I want to look at the inextricable link between simplicity and humility. Jesus in Matthew 5, as he speaks on the mountainside with all the assembled disciples sitting in front of him, the very first words out of his mouth are, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, because we don't understand the context and because we don't uh, have a deep understanding of the words that are spoken, we can't really feel the immediate impact of those very first words that come out of Jesus' mouth. The word he uses for poor is a Greek word, tokos, and it's a perfectly correct translation, and there's a wealth of meaning behind it. He uses that same word when he chooses the passage from um, Isaiah as he picks up the scroll in the synagogue in Luke 4 verse 18, and he says that the Spirit of the Lord God is upon him uh, as the servant of the Lord to preach the gospel to the poor. The same word is used there. And when the disciples of John come to him and they ask, are you the Messiah essentially of him? Are you the anointed one? His answering statements culminate with the words, the poor have the gospel preached to them. That's Matthew 11. And these beatitudes, these uh, statements, if you like, um, of um, blessing and what it means to be blessed as Jesus begins the whole process of teaching on the side of the mountain, blessed are the poor in spirit, Matthew 5 verse 3. It's the same word. In all these three cases, tokos is the word used. And in Greek, there are two words that are used for poor. Penes, which <clears throat> simply means the man who, for whom life is a struggle. He's a poor man. He actually, it's the opposite of affluent, basically. And then there's this word that Jesus uses on all three occasions. <clears throat> and it comes from a verb, which means to cower or to crouch. And it describes something that is not just simply an honest kind of poverty or a lack in the sense of people who struggle to make ends meet. It describes more the abject poverty, which literally means that you have nothing and that you are in uh, real danger of starvation. Because don't forget that in the ancient world there, if you didn't have stuff, if the harvest failed, if the rains didn't come, if something else happened, you could literally starve to death. And that's the kind of uh, poverty, poor, that the, the word that Jesus used. It's not the genteel poverty of someone who just struggles. This is acute deprivation. But behind this Greek word are two Hebrew words, ebion and ani, which are interesting and significant in the development of the understanding and the meaning of the word that we have for the Greek. There's three stages of this, and it's important. You'll see why in a second. They firstly mean simply poor in the sense of lacking this world's goods, and that's what we find in Deuteronomy on some several occasions. That's similar in the sense of struggling to make ends meet. But secondly, it goes on to mean that because you are poor, you are downtrodden and oppressed, which is what we find when we read Amos two six, Amos eight four, that there is a result, an end to what it means to be poor. You become the bottom rung of the ladder, if you like. Then thirdly, and this is where the, the things become interesting because it begins to move to something else here. If a man is poor and downtrodden and oppressed, he has no influence, no power, no prestige. He can't look to others, other men, other other women for help and therefore where, when all of those things are closed to him, the only place he can look to is to God. And therefore, these words come to describe people who, because they have nothing on earth, have come to put their complete and total trust in God. We see that in Amos 5, Psalm 10, Psalm 12, Psalm 17, so many of the Psalms. And we, we we begin to get a feel of what's behind the beatitude when Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. What he's really saying is that blessed is the man who has a real, a complete sense, if you like, of his utter, utter uh, destitution in the sight of God. The man who doesn't just feel unsatisfactory or feel that he's made a few mistakes, but he has to cry out in that moment, "Blessed uh, God be merciful to me, a sinner. There's this real sense of desperation that you you actually realize how much in need of forgiveness and salvation we actually are. That's the first thing. Secondly, it equally means that it's... um, when we feel the sense of being utterly destitute, that we can then put our complete and utter trust in God. And it's the same kind of poverty that in the old days when people would have been at the brink of starvation, they threw themselves on the mercy of God. That's the kind of position that we find ourselves in. We do not have the reserves within ourselves to look after ourselves. Even if we think we so adept at it in Western culture. And so we come the, the Beatitude comes to mean this really: Blessed is the man who is conscious of his desperate need and who is utterly certain that God and God alone can supply his need. In the New Testament, the poor are those who realize their helplessness, their abject helplessness, and that and that their wealth and riches only come and are found in the grace of God. That's quite a powerful image to start when you begin to teach people who are sitting to hear what you have to say. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Pope Francis wrote this a little while back in 2014. He wrote, the Beatitudes of Jesus are new. In fact, they are revolutionary. They present a model of happiness contrary to the logic of this world. Those whom Jesus proclaimed blessed are regarded as useless or losers. What the world glorifies is success at any cost, affluence, the arrogance of power, and self-affirmation at the expense of others. Jesus offers a different definition of what it means to be blessed. He shows us the way to life and happiness and the way and the way way that he himself has taken. In fact, Jesus himself is the way. And we we look at um, that passage that we find that we've read so many times from Philippians chapter two, where it says, do nothing out of selfish, ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourself. Each of you should not look to your own interests but to the interests of others. And Paul is beginning to um, expound to the Philippian church what it looks like to live the way that we are supposed to. And then he says this, and the same attitude should be in us. And this is the attitude that we are to look for. Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And he goes on to explain how God then exalts him and lifts him up. There is this voluntary humility, the voluntary self-emptying, the voluntary... A recognition that we have to cast ourselves completely on God, trust completely on God, and it's then that God, as we are, take up our cross in that sense, as we learn what humility really is, that God lifts us up. St. Francis wrote this, and i um I read it here: Pure and holy simplicity puts all the learning of this world all natural wisdom, to shame. Holy poverty puts all shame uh, to shame, all greed, avarice, and all the anxieties of life. Holy humility puts pride to shame and all the inhabitants of this world and all that is in the world. Humility is a, a difficult topic the moment you begin to talk about it. Um, it's kind of slippery, I suppose, in a sense. And, and the question is, what is the opposite to humility? Um, is, it, is it pride? Is it, in our modern sense, um, ego? But however we define it, and I think that's one of the questions I'd like to pose for us to talk about on Sunday, is how would you define humility? Uh, Saint Benedict, or Benedict of Nursa, as he was when he was born in Umbria um, in the fifth uh, century, was born into a world in which Christianity had become the official state religion, and this new status for Christianity, unfortunately, didn't result in the um, the world becoming more Christian. Rapidly involved the secularization of the church, and there were many earnest Christians who fled into the desert. That's the beginning of the Desert Fathers and Mothers, uh, who who were looking for a faithful way of living. And in in that moment, they moved away to try and find a space in which they could live humbly before their God. And uh, that's where so many of the monasteries and different movements began. But he moves to Rome as a, an urbane young man for an education his parents had sent him, and he he is disillusioned with what he sees in Rome. And he goes to the mountains um, somewhere halfway between Naples and Rome and lives there as a hermit, and he became enormously well-known for his piety, for his wisdom, and for his humility. It's there that he wrote his rule, the Benedictine rule, which has managed to stay relevant over the next 1,500 years, and has continued to give life. At the heart of, um, or, or certainly one of the core things in terms of his rule, which he set out, was the um, what he called the metaphor of Jacob's ladder. And he's referring there to Genesis 28. And the whole subject of humility becomes a focal point that... The recognition is that humility is at the core, at the heart, at a base level, important for us as we pursue what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so let me read you an excerpt from Benedict's Rule. Um, He he uses the, the metaphor of Jacob's Ladder, where Jacob has gone to sleep, puts his head on a rock. Anyway... He has the dream of angels ascending, descending in, in, in Genesis uh, 25. He says this Friends, the Holy Scriptures cry out for, to us, saying, Everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. He's referring there to Jesus saying that in Matthew 25. Therefore, they show us that every exaltation of ourselves is a kind of pride. The psalmist declares that he guarded against the saying, Lord, my heart is not puffed up, nor are my eyes haughty. Neither have I walked in great matters, nor the things that are above me. If we wish to reach the height of humility in this present life, we must journey up the ladder of Jacob, wherein he saw angels ascending and descending. The way of ascending is humility. The way of descending is pride. If our heart is humble, we shall be lifted to heaven. For our body and our soul are two sides of this ladder, and each step is a step of in humility. We must first understand the steps of humility and then enter into the disciplines of them. Now, he's he's talking here, and then he goes on. There are 12 steps as far as he's concerned. And he says we have to actively pursue this whole thing of humility. The first step, he says, is reverence for God. He goes on to say, doing God's will, obedience to others, enduring affliction, confession, um, and various others. I won't go into all of them here, but there is a clear way in which he's saying that humility is something that as believers, as followers of Jesus, if we take seriously what Jesus says in his first statement in the Sermon on the Mount, and what Paul says in Philippians 2, then we must take with utter seriousness this whole thing of learning to live humbly, of understanding where we placed in the order of things. Now, centuries later, literally um, in the 17th century, there's a man who was born in Cambridge actually, he studied in Cambridge. He subsequently became uh, chaplain to Charles I Uh, Jeremy Taylor is his name. You probably wouldn't have heard of him. But there was that whole upheaval during that period where Charles was on the throne with Cromwell, and uh, we're not going to go into the whole history of it. But um, he's imprisoned at some stage by the parliamentarians in 1645. Actually, um, I think that's, if I'm right, just before the death of Charles I. But um, he then moves to Ireland. And he, he is prolific in terms of what he wrote. And he wrote, his best known things were called Holy Living and the second one, Holy Dying. I mean, there's massive amounts of stuff that he wrote. But these two manuals were literally that. They were manuals for a deeper spiritual life. And um, he sets them out in many senses uh, in, in terms of what he called rules. Humility was one of the key things as far as he was concerned in trying to create a framework for people to live honestly, faithfully uh, before God. Um, His first rule was that we ought to have a, 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 a realistic opinion of ourselves. He says this, Humility consists in a realistic opinion of yourself, namely that you are an unworthy person. Believe this about yourself with the same certainty you believe that you are hungry when you have gone without food. He's saying it's as fundamental as that. You have to begin by understanding exactly where you are in the pecking order. And this comes back to the word that Jesus used. um, Blessed are the poor. That sense of we are destitute without God. He has about uh, 19, I think it is, if I remember, steps but essentially he comes to the end of talking about humility and he says humility begins as a gift of god but is increased as we as as a habit we develop now there's lots that we could say about that but the point is this that's in a way humility it's difficult because we we um how do we do, how do we assess whether we are humble or not it's 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 one as I said in the beginning. It's a slippery thing in a sense. It's a gift of God because He changes us. His grace, His mercy, changes us who we are. But it is increased when the, when we when we take certain steps. One of the things He mentions is confession, that we regularly uh, confess to God. Uh, who we are, apart from having a realistic understanding of ourselves. And as I said, there are about 19 steps or rules that he has. Um, But we have become so used to, in our culture, um, self-actualization, self-awareness, having a positive, good, wonderful self-image, that the ego has been placed centrally, squarely on the throne. our culture humility takes us off the throne puts God back on the throne and makes us in service of others and essentially that's where we are that's what humility to a large extent is about now I want to read to you as we come to a conclusion here because that's where I'm coming that when we begin to do this when we begin to to um, tackle the issue of pride in our own lives when we when we, we look to become people who are humble before God in in a very powerful wonderful way James writes to the his, James is so concrete and wonderful it's lovely when you read that little letter that he wrote it's so practical in James four verse six he says that It's when we are humble that we experience God's favor. Now, who doesn't want to experience God's favor? Um, and, And just a few verses later, it says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. It's a constant theme when talking in terms of humility. When we humble ourselves, God lifts us up. Blessed are the poor in spirit because they will inherit, they will see the kingdom of God. And uh, it's that whole thing of our recognition of where we are in the whole process and how much we are dependent on God. This is how uh, Philippians in the message puts it. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others to get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourself long enough to lend a helping hand. Think of yourself in the same way that Christ thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. And then you have the thing of, because of his obedience, because of his humility, God exalted him highly. That's the theme that you see in Jesus when he's talking about it, and reflected again in Paul And in James' writing, Paul writes to the Colossian church and he says, So chosen by God for this new life of love. Dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. Compassion, kindness, humility. What Paul is writing to them and he's saying, you have to dress yourself. You have to take steps to make sure that you are clothed with compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength, discipline. be uh, be even-tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offense. And so it goes on. Humility doesn't get much airtime in our culture. Um, But just as last week I said in a practical down-to-earth lesson kind of way, Jesus said to the disciples, um, and to the 12 and to the 72 when they were off to do ministry in his name, don't take anything with you. He, he does a very practical visual uh, kind of parable when he's about to leave them. It's the logic of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Here is the master. Here is the rabbi. Here is the teacher. Here is the Messiah bending over, doing the work of a slave, coming second. And I think that's an image that must have been printed in the memory of those 12 or those 11, especially as they continued to minister in the name of Jesus. Here's here's, As we conclude, a couple of questions. A quote again from Pope Francis. I think this was from a youth conference he did in 2014. The world tells us to seek success, power, and money. God tells us to seek humility, service, and love. And so, for reflection and for just you to think about during the weekend on Sunday, how would you define, just for you, how would you define humility in a modern sense? And can you think of, perhaps... A couple of examples either from your life or from people that you know. And then, secondly, do you think, how do you think you could encourage this kind of humility in your own life? God bless. I'll see you on Sunday.